have a tendency to forget, don't we? Um, you, you have dates and you forget and you sit down and you're halfway through your cheeseburger and you forgot that your wife told you you're not supposed to have those anymore. You're just supposed to be eating salads because those are healthy and you forgot. Um, it is so easy to forget important stuff. Uh, in 2020, there was a survey conducted of Americans and uh, found out that an average American has 332 forgetful moments every year in their life. That's six a week. Six times you just completely drop a detail. And uh, of, the, of this survey, they found the 10 most common things we forget. Number one on the list was our passwords. Have you forgotten a password lately standing at the ATM machine looking like an absolute crazy person trying to remember desperately what those four digits are so you can get some money. Uh, you go to the grocery store and you forget what you went to the grocery store for. Uh, where your keys are. How many times have you said in your life, honey, where are my keys? Walking into a room and you get into the room and you forget why you walked into that room. Now I knew I was going to do something when I got here. What is it that I was going to do? You forget people's names right after they were introduced to you. You're sitting there talking to them and you just got their name and you can't remember it. Very frustrating. You have a word right on the tip of your tongue but you can't remember it. You forgot where you put your pen. You forget what day it is. How many times do you say, what day is it? Forget to take something out of the freezer to defrost it. Forget where you put your phone. If you forget where you put your phone, just forget it on that day. You're not getting anything done that day without your phone. So here are a few pictures of some people that forgot things. Uh, Grandpa hung his skates on a small wooden tree when he was younger. He forgot where he put them, and years later he found them. There they are. This couple forgot to take the chocolate Easter bunny out of the car on Easter. This uh, manufacturer forgot to fill in the French words on their sleeping bag. So they just put French, 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 French. They forgot the French, uh, fr French wording there. And this guy forgot to put the drain plugs in his boat. But he remembered to tie it to the dock. So that's good. It's not going to go anywhere because he's got that baby tied up. It's easy to forget stuff. And the number one thing that causes us to forget stuff is preoccupation. Too much going on. Too many things stealing your attention that you can't pay attention to what's important. It becomes so easy to drop details. And we live in a day and an age right now where Americans have never been as distracted as we are right now. There, have ne there has never been a time in the history of the church that there is more division and anger and, and divisive opinion at work inside the church than right now. We are forgetting about unity because we want to talk about our opinion. We are forgetting about unity because we're mad about stuff. We're forgetting some important things. And if the church of Jesus Christ doesn't remember some important things, then we are going to be rendered completely ineffective at the greatest harvest time in the history of this country. We are still the A plan. 
the reason that I say we're the A plan, we are the plan that God has, the church, for discipling the world, for winning the world, for evangelizing the world. We are the A plan. I know we're the A plan because the rapture of the church hasn't taken place. We're still here and we're still in business and God has a plan for us. How unfortunate that being the A-plan, too many churches are disqualifying themselves from active service and from potential effectiveness because they simply have forgotten some things they need to know. In the life of Peter, Jesus would teach him life lessons that he had to know, and he always did it with a fish. Every time Jesus was going to teach Peter something of great significance, he did it with fish because he knew that he had Peter's attention when he talked about fish. I want to go on a little tour of Jesus and Peter's relationship. I want to look at three windows where Jesus underlined some things for Peter in his life, and they're things that I feel are desperately important for the church to remember today. These are three things that Peter was in danger of forgetting that Jesus made a point of, that I want to make a point of tonight because we must hang on to these things and we cannot afford to forget them. I want to remind you that Jesus will always ask for your very best. Jesus will always ask for your best. In Luke 5, Jesus is going to walk down the shoreline. There are some boats on the shore. There has been a day of fishing that has taken place. There was no catch. The men who occupy the boats are washing their nets at the end of a very busy ship. They're tired. They're frustrated. They have no result for their effort. And Jesus walks up to Peter and asks him for a boat ride. If I was Peter, I would have said, hey, we are not a tour company. This is a very unsuccessful fishing company. Please don't bother us. Head down the beach and see if someone else would like to give you a ride. But that's not what Peter did. Jesus got into the boat. He advises Peter on fishing and a miracle takes place, and so many fish are caught that the boat begins to sink. Jesus then says to Peter, follow me, and from now on, from now on, you will fish for men. Jesus said to Peter, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. You see, every Christian leader that you follow should make that promise to you. If you follow me, I will make you into what God has designed you to be. I'm not interested in making you into what I need. I'm interested in making you into the way God made you to be. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. From now on, you will fish for men. This is the call of Peter. Something key is going to begin right here with Jesus and Peter. Jesus is going to teach Peter a major lesson about life through full nets of fish. 
all of a sudden, Peter has got his attention on Jesus because Jesus is really good at something he understands. Peter was a great fisherman. The lesson here is going to be a significant one. You, Peter, have to be teachable in your greatest area of strength if you're going to be of value. Unsubmitted strength always leads to trouble. Submitted strength is something that God moves powerfully through. Jesus wants your best. Jesus wants your strength. Oh, he'll take your sin. He'll take your past. He'll take your regrets and your failures. That's not discipleship. That's conversion. Discipleship is when I give the best of who I am to Jesus to use for his glory and for his honor. That's discipleship. Peter is becoming a disciple. From now on, you're not going to pursue fish. You're going to use your fishing skills over here for men. You get the opinion that somehow God is excited about us giving him our sin. Confessing our sin and confessing our failures and confessing our shortcomings. He'll take that because he loves you. But that's not what he's after. What he wants is the best that you bring to the table. You see, God in Scripture never ever made an apology for asking for the best. He asked for the best from the rich young ruler. He asked for the very best from Elisha, who was driving the 12th set of oxen. He asked him to give all of that away and follow him. My friend, God's not intimidated by your giftedness. He's not intimidated by your strength. He's not intimidated by your intellect. He's not intimidated by how much money you have acquired. These are key areas where God wants to teach you the most significant lessons of your life is where you are good and where you have strength. Humility is one of those words that's misunderstood in most church settings. Humility isn't weakness. Humility isn't milk toast. Humility is strength under control. The greatest picture of humility is a Trojan war horse with a rider on its back, every muscle tense, ready to charge into battle, ready to do great harm on an enemy, and yet completely submitted to the will of the rider. Humility, my friend, is not optional in the kingdom of God. It is a requirement in the kingdom. Either you will humble yourself and God will exalt you, or you will exalt yourself and God will humble you. Now, I don't know what all that means, but I don't like the sound of God humbling me. I'd rather take the lead on that one, Father. Thank you very much. I'm just going to work at it myself. I think my humbling process would be far less strenuous on me than you humbling me. Matthew 23, 12 says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. To those who humble themselves will be exalted. Wow. Humility is strength under control. Only when your greatest areas of strength and ability is yielded to God 
can you then learn the greatest lessons of your life as a Christ follower? Jesus will teach you the greatest lessons of your life in the area where your strength has been submitted to him. Humility is not theology. It's not theory. It's not a nice concept. It's not optional. It is to be a functional aspect of our lives. Functional humility is leading with my strength under the control of the Holy Spirit. Numbers 12.3 has an interesting statement. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else in the face of the earth. Now that flies right in the face of our definition of humility when somebody can write about themselves, I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth. (laughs) What Moses is saying is, Nobody's strength is more submitted to God than mine. And he wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want you to remember is that Jesus will take your sin gladly, but he wants your strength. Second thing is this. When you forget who God is, Jesus will not leave that alone. Jesus will go out of his way to remind you who God is in your set of circumstances. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, is a story that takes place in Capernaum. Jesus was there with the disciples, and there is a tax collector who's there is collecting taxes for the temple. And he comes up to Peter, the tax collector comes to Peter, and he says to Peter, does your master pay the temple tax? And Peter says, yes, he does. When they get into the house, Jesus is the first one to speak, and he says, what were you thinking? Do the kings collect from their sons or from other people? And Peter said, from other people. And what's happening here is that Jesus is making a claim about who he is, that he is the son of a king that he is royalty and he shouldn't be asked for a temple tax. Jesus says, let's not offend them. Peter had misspoken. He's frustrated at Peter's lack of understanding about his claim on royalty. And Jesus sends Peter fishing. He says this to him, go down to the lake Put in a line, and the first fish you catch, there will be a coin. You go down and pay your temple tax and mine. This is the only time in Scripture in the New Testament when a line is mentioned for fishing. Every other time, it's a net because we're trying to catch a lot of them. This one means there's going to be patience, there's going to be time, there's going to be investment of time, there's going to be a line put in there, and the the instruction is specific. You're going to catch one fish, one, because you're not going back to fishing, Peter. Remember, from now on, you will fish for men. The statement here is you're going to get one, and you're going to be done. You're not going back. Peter goes down. He reflects. He thinks. He catches one fish. And he takes and he pays the temple tax. 
after he had made a mistake, after he had misspoken, after he had not given Christ the due that was coming him on his royalty, Jesus addresses it. In the past two years, far too many Christians have forgotten who God is in the middle of our circumstances. We are more concerned over the issues of the day and what divides us this week than the power of God that is to be at work in our lives. We are forgetting how powerful God is. We are forgetting how ever-present the Father is. When your problems get bigger than your God, you're out of business. In every situation, your God should be bigger than the circumstance that you're dealing with. You and I cannot afford to forget who the Father is. We cannot forget His characteristics that are consistently at work in our lives. In Exodus 34, it says that the Lord is compassionate and He's gracious He's slow to anger and he's abounding in love and faithfulness and that he's forgiving of wickedness. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says that God is faithful. In 1 John 1, God is light. In 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. He's patient with you. The delay in that that response of his promise isn't that he's slow or that he forgot or you need to remind him. It's that he's being patient with you. Every good and perfect gift is from God, according to James 1. God is not a man, according to Numbers 23. Can we just remember that God is not a man and we can't talk about him or talk to him like he is? As for God, his ways are perfect and the word of the Lord is flawless. And he's a shield for us, according to Psalm 18. And in Psalm 116, he's gracious and righteous and he's full of compassion. We cannot afford to forget who God is. So the first thing that Jesus is going to teach Peter with fish is, hey, I need you to understand that I want your strength. The second thing that Jesus would teach to Peter is, please don't forget who I am. And he's going to go after Peter in Capernaum and try and remind him of the reality of who he is. And Peter is going to forget it and he's going to end up denying Christ. Not once, not twice, but three times. Peter's going to have a bad day. And that leads us to John 21, which is the third encounter with fish. And the thing that Jesus wants us to remember here is that When you fail, Jesus will come to you. He is not going to abandon you. He is not going to play hard to find. He is going to come right after you. When you blow it, it isn't your job to get it right with God. Jesus will come to you. You know, in a room like this, Some of you have the call of God on your life. 
Some of you have been called by God. Maybe it happened at a children's camp or a youth camp or maybe one Saturday you were here in church and pastor was preaching and and you felt God say something to you and set you apart. And you knew that you knew that you knew that God had put his hand on your life and there was something unique about what God wanted to do with you. But then some events took place. There was a divorce. There was that abortion. There was that time in jail. And in your life, you started to mark up some mistakes. And you started to have some regrets. And they started to take their toll. And you decided in yourself, because of the mistakes and because of the challenges, that you were no longer called by God. And that you weren't good enough anymore to be used by God in His plan because of the mistakes that you made in your life. And so you self-eliminated that which God spoke over you. The problem with that is, that in Romans eleven twenty nine it says very clearly that the gifts of God and the call of God are irrevocable. Yeah. And what that word means is that God doesn't change his mind about you. And even though you've made a mistake, even though you've fallen down, even though you've failed, even though you've got regrets, even though you've got remorse... That doesn't eliminate you from the plan that God has for your life. It uniquely equips and qualifies you for God to do something special through you. God doesn't throw people away who make mistakes. Jesus goes after those kind of people and gets them re-engaged in what it is he's asked them to do. The call of God is irrevocable. Peter denied Christ. He'd been called. And now he's denying Jesus to a servant girl. And in John 21, we catch up with Peter. And he's in a boat. And he's looking for fish. The Luke 5 calling, the from now on, was sitting idly off to the side. And in the first century fishing vessel is not just Peter, but all of the other disciples. The history and the future of the church sits in a single boat looking for fish. And as the waves lapped against the little boat, Peter ran through in his mind the conversation, Lord, never will I deny you. If everybody else turns their back, I won't. And he relived it, and he relived it, and he relived it. And they threw the nets in again and again, trying to get those fish. It's a step backward. It's a step into what's comfortable. It's a step into what used to be. But Jesus is there. Peter doesn't even know it. He's on the beach. 
and he's preparing breakfast. When Peter comes ashore, the breakfast is made. And Jesus says to him, Hey, Peter, do you love me more than these? And I think in that question, we're missing something if we don't put a fish in Jesus' hands. Do you love me more than these? What are you doing out there? Don't you love me more than these? Jesus went to Peter in person. He didn't send somebody else. He went there himself. There's a fire of coals and a breakfast has been cooked. The fish, the fire of coals, the advice on the beach, casting nets on the other side. Every detail is intended to say something to Peter. Every detail is thought out in advance. Jesus had this coal, fire, and fish prepared and present on the beach. Only twice in the New Testament is a coal of fire, a fire of coals mentioned. The first time is in John 18, 18, where Peter stood warming his hands at a, at a fire of coals, denying Christ. And now here again in John 21, where Jesus is making his breakfast. The coal fire, the three questions, all intended to recreate a scene of Peter's denial, not for the purpose of rehashing it, but for completely dealing with it and restoring the man. The fire of coals points to another idea, and it's the idea of preparation. The coal here that's being mentioned isn't the mineral. There is no coal mineral in all of Palestine. This is wood that is burned down to coal. It takes at least an hour to get wood into this condition. Jesus was there preparing this scene in advance to every detail. When Jesus comes after you, he knows he knows you, he knows the story, he knows the situation, he knows the failure, he knows the stuff, he knows how you feel, and the way he comes after you is to fix it so you never have to deal with it again. You see, Jesus spoke about the future and not the past. Jesus affirmed the call of Peter. He had trusted Peter with something of greater value than just being a follower. Jesus used the restoration as a new launch. And Jesus was willing to start with Peter right where Peter was. Jesus said this, do you love me? And Peter said, you know I love you. In the Greek, it goes this way. Do you agape me? Do you have an unconditional love for me, Peter? And Peter responded, I phileo you. You know the best I can do, Lord, is to have a brotherly affection for you. 
And the third time Peter is grieved in the story that Jesus would ask the question, the reason he's grieved is because Jesus changes the verb tense and he says then, will you phileo me? Will you have a brotherly love for me? And Peter was grieved and he said, you know all things and you know the best I can do right now is to have a brotherly love for you. And Jesus reinstates his man on a lower level of commitment than Jesus even was asking for. Jesus said, okay, then that's where we start. Right there with a brotherly love for each other. But you know what it grew into? It grew into an agape love because Peter would die upside down, crucified on an X. And he would not deny him again. And he would not back down again. And he would not go back to the boats again. And he would not go back to fishing again. Because Jesus met him where he was. And started where he was. And took him from that point forward. It's growth for Peter. To not overstate the level of his commitment to Christ. And Jesus didn't back off when, G when Peter was honest about all that he could do. He came to him and he met him where he was at. I want to tell you something, my friends. That is Christ. You need to remember that when you fail, he doesn't have a club. He's not after you. He's going to meet you in such a unique way that he puts you back together for what's just ahead. Tonight, just before I pray for you and turn this back to your pastor, I want to ask you, if you're here today and you say, hey, Brett, I needed to be reminded that Jesus wants my best, would you just wave at me? Just needed to be reminded of that. He wants my very best, not just my sin. Maybe you're here and you say, hey, Brett, I needed to be reminded of who God is in my set of circumstances, that he's got to be bigger than my stuff. If that's you, would you just kind of wave at me? Yeah. And if you're here today and you say, I needed to be reminded that Jesus wants to reinstate me and to restore me and put me back into action. If that's you, just wave at me. I just needed to be reminded of that. If there's a call of God on your life and it's dormant because you put it there, the Father is ready to re-engage you tonight. And I speak life over that calling. I bring that to the front. I call that out to the front and I speak life over the call of God on your life. You're in a church that wants to reach a community. It's not by accident. You've been put here with a call of God on your life. I speak life over that. Lord, bring it back to the forefront, I pray. Stir that again. Ignite that again in the name of Jesus, I pray. Let me pray for you.